How many of you have a kid? How many of you have grandkids? How many of you have kids in your neighborhood? How many of you have ever seen a kid? They are all invited to be a part of our Vacation Bible School, so we need people to step up and serve that week. You'll see the dates in your, in your handout, and we go from there. I am excited this, this week to be able to go and sit down and be fed just like you. And so I'm excited that the Lord has led Tony and Carly Smith to be a part of our faith family. Uh, Tony and Carly have not only become incredible members of our faith family, but just good friends to Julie and I as well. And one of Tony's gifts is the proclamation of God's word. And so, Tony, I just want to pray for you, and then I want to ask the Lord just to bless you, and then I'll say amen, and you hit the ground running. So, Father, I pray that this morning you would speak through my friend. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your servant. Father, I pray that he would be the messenger, the Holy Spirit, you would have the freedom to, to speak through him, to rule through him. And Father, I pray that we are impacted in the way that you have designed and, and intended for us Lord, I know that your word will accomplish what you set it out to do. So, Father, I pray that at the end of this time, we are more like you than when we started because we have been in your presence. We've heard your voice and we have been changed by your word because we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jonathan. Good morning. Good morning, church. How are you? So uh, I was sitting back there and I was getting my mic on. I have some friends here with us today and, and uh, I get my mic wrapped around my ear and then I just had this feeling that I should click it on and start singing. <laughs> and, and I looked over at them and they're like, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> I just knew it was my opportunity though, you know. Um, I feel like I need to extend that introduction a little bit just to tell you what I'm not. Um, I am not a pastor. I'm not a minister. Um, I'm not ordained in any way. I did not go to seminary. Um, you know, come to think of it, I, I really don't know why you have me up here, Jonathan. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate the prayer, Jonathan, and I think you know my heart, and that's why I'm up here today. Uh, I'm a man that loves the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, uh, with all my mind. Uh, I love the Lord with all my strength. Um, the second part of that verse, I'm still working on the love your neighbor as yourself part. Uh, <laughs> that'll be a lifelong endeavor for me, um, but it, it's something that I'm working on. If, if you're new with us this morning, welcome. Glad that you're here with us today. Uh, just know that I'm, um, I, I'm the B team, so <laughs> if, uh, if you don't like what you hear, come on back next week. It's, it's bound to get better. Uh, <laughs> all joking aside, um, God has placed a really um, powerful message on my heart this morning. And if I'm being uh, completely transparent with you, it's a message that, I, that I've struggled with. Um, I've spoken with Carly about it and Jonathan. It's a message that I feel like I need to dress it up. A message that I feel like um, I need to candy coat it. Um, in my opinion, this is probably one of the second toughest pass passages in all of scripture to preach and to teach on. And, um, you know, when I pray about it, I just feel like God's saying, teach the text. And so that's what we're going to do here this morning. Uh, we have been journeying through the gospel of Mark together. And if you have your copy of God's word in front of you, I'm going to ask that you turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark, of course, is the second book uh, of the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, then go to the 14th chapter. We're going to the 32nd verse. 
And as we prepare to study God's word this morning, I really want to get us up to speed on where we have been. Uh, This morning's teaching, in my opinion, is where the turn in Mark's gospel happens. This is where uh, where we go from uh, going in one direction to going in a a different direction. And uh, to this point in the gospel, we have seen Jesus cause disciples into his ministry. We've seen Jesus preach. Uh, He's taught. He's healed. We've seen Jesus rebuke. We've seen Jesus speak in parables. We've seen Jesus affirm his deity. We've seen Jesus affirm his authority. We've seen him perform many miracles. He's prophesied about his death. He's prophesied about his resurrection. Um, He's fulfilled prophecy. Jesus reached the unlovable. Jesus reached the unreachable. Jesus challenged the Jewish authorities in their way of thinking. He challenged the Jewish authorities in their application of the law. He's challenged his followers who were in his presence, and he's challenged his followers here today with his word. It's during this time, uh, throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen the scribes, we've seen the teachers of the law, we've seen uh, the Pharisees, we've seen the Sadducees. They've all progressed from observing Jesus to just looking at his ministry from the outskirts to really questioning and challenging the followers of Christ. And then they progressed into challenging Jesus and his authority directly. And now we're at the turn of the story. And the turn, of course, is where they're trying to tra- trap Jesus. And they make no, no qualms about it. They're trying to have him arrested, and ultimately, they're trying to have Jesus killed. This is a heavy message this morning. My prayer this entire week has been that everyone who hears this message would open their minds and open their hearts to what God is trying to say to them. And really just try to grasp a hold of the magnitude of what it is that our Savior was going through in this moment, in this text, and what he was experiencing. Many of you know that I'm really big on context when reading God's word, and so I really want to get us up to speed and then also set everything up. We are entering into the Passover in our text. Uh, This is one of the most important Jewish holidays that you'll see on the Jewish calendar. This is a a celebration of liberation of the Jewish people from their their bondage in Egypt. This is a celebration of, of... uh, the release from Egyptian slavery. It's, a, it's during this time, church, it's during this time, a time of celebration, a time of liberation, a time of freedom. It's during this time that the chief priests were plotting for a way to take Jesus and to have him killed. They had a hang-up, though. You know what their hang-up was? The only hang-up that they had was that the people, the people would revolt because it was happening during such an important holiday. I want you to keep in mind I want you to keep in mind that these chief priests, they're well studied. These chief priests, they know the law. These chief priests, they know the prophets. They have head knowledge of who the Messiah should be, what what he should look like. They have head knowledge of the things he should say. They have head knowledge of the way he should act. They have head knowledge of all these things, but as we go through the text, we see that their hearts are so far from God that they're unable to see him standing right before them. And it begins. Not only are the teachers of the law turning against our Lord, but one by one by one by one, all of the disciples will eventually stumble. 
Leading up to our passage, Jesus enters into Simon the leper's home. There's a lady there named Mary. And Mary pulls out this alabaster jar of, of nard. Nard's like a really expensive imported perfume. Um, scholars believe it would have been close to a year's wages for Mary. And she pulls out that jar and she breaks it. And she pours it on Jesus' head. And then she pours it on Jesus' feet. And some of the disciples who saw this, those who are closest to Jesus, don't miss that part, the disciples, they look at what she's doing and they, and they admonish her in front of everyone. This could have been sold, they said. The money could have been given to the poor, they said. This is a waste, they said, a waste. Keep in mind that she had likely given everything that she had to honor our Lord. And they called it a waste, that to honor Jesus was wasteful, that the money could have been better used elsewhere. Thereafter, we get Judas Iscariot. He's one of the 12, and he goes to one of the chief priests. Now, keep in mind that the chief priest didn't come to Judas Iscariot, that, the, that Judas Iscariot goes to the chief priest willingly and readily, and he agrees to betray Jesus for some silver. And by pairing these two stories together, what Mark has done is he has given us this contrast, if you will, of the things that, the way that we should live in Mary and the way that most of us, unfortunately, actually live and Judas, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it, Jesus said. So we get Jesus and the disciples are preparing for the Passover. We get Jesus calling out Judas, identifying Judas. Jesus said to those sitting around him, he says, I tell you the truth, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And one by one, they go around the table and they ask Jesus, they say, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I? You know, this is a question that we should really all ask ourselves. For we've all denied Jesus. Is it I, Lord? Right after this, we get another reference to Jesus being the Son of Man as prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. And then we have the Lord's Supper. And then we have Jesus telling the disciples that they would all stumble because of him that very night. And then Peter, well, he decides that he's going to affirm his allegiance right then and there to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he says, I tell you the truth, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And this brings us to our text this morning. But before we dive into the text this morning, I want you to take a quick side road with me. Have you ever been... Have you ever been just so completely distressed? Have you ever been troubled beyond imagination? I mean, to the point where it feels like the sorrow alone that you're going through is just so heavy it's going to kill you. Have you ever asked for people around you to, to help you? You know, like, hey, I need you. I need you. And they let you down. And so you turn to your closest friends, your best friends, those who are your, your they would never let you down, those people, and then they too let you down. If you have, then you've experienced just a very small taste, a very small, small taste of what it was that our Lord was going through in our text here this morning. And with that, if you have your copies of God's word, and if you're physically able, I'm going to ask that you stand in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. We'll be picking it up in Mark chapter 14. Verse 32, and it says this. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter 
and James and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed, and he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther, and he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Father, Father, this morning I pray that you open our eyes, Lord, to the things that you want us to see. Father, I pray that we don't think about other people, but that we think about how we can be better aligned with you. Father, I pray that you open our ears to the things that you want us to hear. Father, I pray that you, I pray that you take out our hearts of stone, that you place upon us a heart of flesh. Make us a compassionate people, Lord. Allow us, Lord, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Father, Lord Jesus. Change us to be more like you. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Our passage begins with Jesus asking his outer circles of disciples, the outer circle of disciples, to sit and pray. And and then he takes Peter, and he takes James, and he takes John with him. He'd gone off with these three multiple times, according to Mark's gospel. This is Jesus' inner circle. Uh, These are the first disciples that Jesus had called into his ministry. You may recall the story where they're fishing and they throw their net in and they're not catching any fish and Jesus from the shore says, do it again. And they catch so many fish that the net begins to break. It's, It's these three, it's these three that he asks to keep watch. The word that Mark uses here is not an observational type of watch. He's not, Jesus isn't saying, hey, go, go look over there. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's, it's an active watch. This watch that Jesus talks about, it's a, it's a vigilant watch. And the word that Mark uses, it's most importantly a wakeful watch. It's being alert. This type of watch where you would actively be on post, actively on lookout. You're actively looking for trouble. You're actively looking for danger. You're actively, actively looking for something along those lines. And it's important to note here that this is not, this isn't a suggestion by Jesus. Jesus isn't suggesting to them to be on the lookout. This this is a directive by our Lord, and it's at this point, verse 34, where it says he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Jesus says this in the verse. Jesus said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. My soul. If you write in your Bible, that's a good one to underline. Jesus had been telling the disciples of what was to come. You see, Jesus knew what the Father's will was. And yet he endured this agony anyway. I'm convinced that it wasn't human death that made his soul sorrowful. I'm convinced that it wasn't the human pain that he would face that made him sorrowful. I'm convinced that it wasn't the stripes upon his back, it wasn't the crown being pressed into his head, the crown of thorns. I'm convinced that it wasn't his hands being nailed to the cross. I'm convinced that it wasn't his feet being nailed to the cross that made him sorrowful, that caused his soul to become exceedingly sorrowful. It wasn't those things. I'm convinced that it was the weight of sin. It was the weight of sin being placed upon this perfect soul. 
It was your sin and it was my sin that made him feel like he was going to die. Keep in mind, if we go back to Genesis, God is talking to Adam. And he's talking about sin and he says to Adam, speaking of the fruit, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Paul said in Romans, for the wages of sin is death. You see, his soul was sorrowful to the point of sin, or to the, to the point of death because of our sin. There's a verse in uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, God made him who had no sin to be a sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him, Jesus Christ, who was blameless, become sin for us so that in him we become the righteousness of Christ. This is what made Jesus troubled, that he was to become sin. This is what made Jesus deeply distressed. Jesus was to be a sacrifice for sin. He resolved here in this passage, church, he resolved to lay down his life willingly for you and for me, whosoever, whosoever. The author of Hebrews in chapter five, verse seven and eight, wrote of Jesus, and, and this is what the author of Hebrews said, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he, speaking of Jesus, learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In this moment of deep distress, Jesus cries out to our God, Abba, Father. This is a, this is a term of endearment for a child to his dad. This is a cry out from a child to his father. And he said, take this cup from me. This is a cup that we see multiple times in the Old Testament. This is a cup of, of, of wrath. This is a cup of, of judgment. We see it in Psalms. We see it in Isaiah. We see it in Jeremiah. Take this cup from me, Jesus says. But he continues, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You see, Jesus drank the cup at the cross. But he decided to drink the cup here in Gethsemane. You see, the struggle of the cross was won here in this passage. It's important to note here that Jesus isn't looking for a way out from under the cross. That's not what's happening. Jesus isn't trying to avoid the cross. That's not what's happening. He was simply asking the Father, Father, is there any other possible way than let it be? But if there's not any other possible way, then let it be. One of the things this does is that it completely, and this is so important, one of the things this verse does is that it completely eliminates any other way to salvation. It just completely eliminates any other way to salvation. If there was another way to salvation, if Jesus' death on the cross wasn't necessary, the Father would have answered the call to his Son. This leads us, church, to the natural conclusion that Jesus Christ is indeed the way. That Jesus Christ alone is indeed the truth. That Jesus Christ alone is indeed the life and that there's no other way to the Father except through the Son. Jesus comes back and he finds them sleeping and it's at this moment of just great agony that Jesus is all alone. He's all alone. He's, his disciples, they give him no support at all. Drop down with me to verse 37. Then he came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? I love this verse. I absolutely love this verse. You see, Simon, 
was Peter's name before he followed Jesus. Peter was the name given to him by Jesus. Peter means rock. Listen to this passage from Matthew's gospel. Mark your page. Turn to the left with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. This is Jesus speaking to Simon who will become Peter. Jesus says this. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Flip back to Mark 14, 37. Let's read that verse again. It says, Then he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? I read this, and I hear Jesus saying, Are you Simon? Are you Simon, the fisherman who couldn't catch fish that day? Or are you Peter, the rock for which I will build my church? Who are you? Now wake up. Now wake up. Ever since I, I became a believer... Ever since I took on the righteousness of Christ, it's a question that I must ask myself. Who am I? Who am I? Am I a new creation? Do I truly believe that I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Do I truly believe this, or am I that other guy? That guy who is godless. Who are you? Are you Simon, or are you Peter? Are you Mary, or are you Judas? Jesus tells Peter, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Again, this isn't an observational watch. It's, again, that be on the lookout watch. And here we are given direction on how we are to resist temptation, to be on the lookout. And through prayer is the way to avoid temptation. Keep in mind, temptation doesn't come from God. Temptation only comes from the enemy. We can't just flippantly go through life. We can't just flippantly have a reactive position and allow temptation to occur. We are to see. We are to be on the lookout. We are to see where the enemy is at work. And most importantly, we're to pray. In this instance, Jesus is speaking to Peter about the temptation to deny Jesus. The interesting part of this passage, for me anyway, is Jesus found victory at the cross by succeeding in the struggle against Gethsemane by keeping watch and by praying. Peter, just like us, he failed in his temptation because he failed to watch and pray. The lesson here, the lesson here is that, that the spiritual battle is often won or it's lost before the crisis occurs. Two more times, Jesus goes off to pray and he comes back and, and he finds them sleeping. You know, it was bad enough that the disciples didn't watch and pray for themselves, but they couldn't even watch and pray for our Lord. The passage ends with Jesus saying, it is enough. It is enough. We shouldn't think here that Jesus was angry because his disciples wouldn't watch and pray. That's not what's happening. And I'm of the mindset that his prayer was answered. I'm of the mindset that Jesus knew that his time had come. I'm of the mindset that, I'm of the mindset that God answered the prayer of his son and strengthened him enough to endure that cross. As Jonathan comes forward, I want to close with this. It's a tough passage. It's a tough passage for me, a tough passage, passage to teach on. 
What do you do with a passage like this, church? I mean, what do you do with this? How, how can we apply these teachings to become more like Christ? I think, the, I think the biggest takeaway for me is as we read the text, we see that Jesus, well, he didn't want to go to the cross. Take this cup from me, he said. But he did it anyway. Why? Because it was the will of God. You know, I tell you to date that no one has laid down their life for me except our Lord. And he did the same for you. He did the same for you. And so what is the will of God for your life? It's given to us throughout scripture as we read God's word. We see God's will given to us throughout scripture. And one of the many passages about God's will, my favorite, is John chapter 6, verse 40. It says this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on that last day. How beautiful is that? You see, Jesus' will, God's will for your life, is that you see him. God's will is that you believe in him. God's will is that he will raise you up on that last day. God's will is to get you into heaven. You know, as believers, we're promised a lot of things. Uh, one of the things that we're promised is that it's not going to be easy in this Christian walk. But we have God's word, and we have the Holy Spirit, and we have Jesus. So let's watch and pray, church. Let's watch and pray so that we don't enter into temptation. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing one final song.